We're doomed, we're saved. The Biorevolution Podcast. Your hosts, Luise von Stecho and Andreas Horchler. We're doomed, we're saved, episode number 20 by now. Women's health, humanity's other half, we called it. We'll talk about R&D and medicine and pharma and biology, society in relation to women's well-being. And easy, quite frankly, I must admit, before preparing for today's episode, I would have guessed a pretty developed equality here, but that's wrong. So today we're meeting here in Berlin at your place and you brought quotes and much more important guests. Exactly. Yeah, I have to say that even I, although I knew that there was some inequality when I did the research for the episode, was surprised on how unequal it is. And I hope we can disentangle that today a little bit with our guests, Pascal and Anna. Maybe you want to introduce yourselves briefly and then we dive into the quotes. So Pascal and Anna are former colleagues of mine and I'm really happy to have them here for the episode today. Hi, Louise. Hi. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, my name is Anna. I'm a scientist as background, have PhD in molecular biology, already touching on women's health at the time, and have been since then a consultant for the biopharma industry, where this topic has come to much more of my attention and passion, actually. Passion is always good. And on my side, Pascal Jolie, partner at Catanian. So also scientist by training, I studied regenerative medicine and then I was in Boston for a while doing my postdoc and then joining Catanian, so strategic consulting firm. We've been supporting biopharma and biotech on that precise topic and we do a lot of prioritization process where this topic about should we get into and go and develop drug into women's health come. And I'm supporting Anna who is taking the lead in our company on the topic. So really looking forward to the conversation today. So we always want to start episodes with quotes. Let's get into that. Yes. I will start with one and hand over to Anna for another one. So I'll start with, okay, we talked about it yesterday. Someone who might maybe, very maybe, become the next president of the United States, Michelle Obama. Just speculating. I mean, so we're not a political podcast, so let's skip no. that one. So uh, she says, communities and countries and ultimately the world are only as strong as the health of their women, which I think is a very nice quote. Indeed. And I bring one from the first UK's women's health ambassador, Dame Leslie Regan, that said, although women usually live longer than men, they spend considerably more time in poor health. Female health is under-researched, under-invested and undervalued by the traditional healthcare model. It's like just incredible because, you know, hinting to my opening statement that I just couldn't imagine that this is so dire, the situation, and so different, reaching from drugs to disease to how women are treated by male doctors. And, you know, we open up the whole field right now, but first off, easy, we have to define What is a woman? Because in our times, we have to talk about this, obviously. So the lay of the land, the basics, we have to define a little bit. And what are the main crucial obstacles? Yeah, to define, I think for the... So we had some, also with, with Pascal and Anna, some, some online discussion about that beforehand. For the purpose of the topic, we would qualify a person that has a uterus and might or might not identify as a woman for the purpose of this discussion under the umbrella of female health or women's health, because that is 
the one side of the picture of having the biological sex, mm -hmm. but the other half of the picture is gender. So that's more like the socio-economic or social-societal construct that is actually defining the role that a person of a certain sex might play. So how they're perceived, how they should act, what kind of lifestyle they have. And I think both contribute to the inequality in the women's health field. Do you have anything to add on that or is that would that be your your definition as well yeah that would be my definition as well and it's the, the one that is accepted also you may see when looking online that sometimes it is referred as woman's health which considers this understanding of gender sometimes you may see it described as female health that goes more onto the biological sex mm -hmm. but the whole point here is that it's focused on people with uteri yeah so anna pascal let's let's refer to some of the specific female diseases and how they are treated to get closer to the topic? So there's an understanding on female health, women's health, that is talking about the reproductive system. So the typical endometriosis, uh, PCOS, uterine fibroids, everything related to fertility, to pregnancy, to labor complications and so on. And of course, this encompasses a great part of women's health and a very important one. But women's health is more than that. It's also diseases that affect differently or disproportionately women. And here the, the realm is much more vast. So if we look at Alzheimer's diseases or other mental diseases, this really affects uh, women much more. So for example, another example is autoimmune diseases. 78% of the patients that have autoimmune diseases are women. Incredible. Exactly. And there's as well Alzheimer's diseases, 66% of the patients are women. And so when we look at these diseases or uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, is a great example, again, in the autoimmune disease, it goes much more than the typical reproductive system related diseases that normally people understand in women's health. Mm -hmm. If you quote Alzheimer, and probably we get to that a little more in depth, is this, if I look at data, just related to women getting older than men and have a more likelihood of developing Alzheimer's? No, it's not just that. So you see it in specific conditions. There's also the immune component that makes a woman actually more susceptible to those kind of disease. And what you've seen as well is the burden we're talking about. It affects more than 50% of the women during their working age. So we're not just talking All about right. condition in the older age, you know, and that has a significant burden on society. And I think it was accumulating to losing time of productivity of seven days per year per woman. So it's something which is significant. But I mean, it fits the box of having an unmet need that you need to address, having an impact on society. But at the same time, you know, you have those larger conditions and we'll get into that probably, such as endometriosis that you think at the level of type 2 diabetes that everyone knows about. And still for endometriosis, not much is being done or being developed. Just in a quick nutshell, if we stick to, to Alzheimer's uh, for just a second, would you argue it would make sense to do R&D and develop a drug for female Alzheimer's patients? Well, I would say that at least it makes sense that we as a society, as researchers, understand 
why there is a difference and why 66% of patients are women. And that is not the case. For example, recent uh, research shows that the NIH funding, which is the biggest funding in US, and when we talk about R&D and about drug development, we need to talk about the US because that's where most of the innovation comes. Even though 66% of women have Alzheimer, only 12% of the Alzheimer budget the NIH went to women-focused research. So at the end, it's like it could be the age only, but it could be many other factors. There could be maybe easier ways to treat Alzheimer's in women than in men. We will not know. Easy. I think before we get into cases, we have to lay out more groundworks and Talk about the X and the Y. <laughs> yeah, I called the section Solving for X. <laughs> like Which I like because that, that, that's the reason I quoted it. Yeah, now we go back to super basic biology. So you get a set of chromosomes from your parents when you're born. And if you're a female, you get two X chromosomes. And if you're male, you get one Y chromosome. If you have two X chromosomes, something needs to be done with the other chromosome because otherwise you would have an overabundance of gene expression. So you have two copies of every gene, while males would have only one copy of every gene that's on the X. And there is actually some X-linked diseases that show up in men but are silent in women, like for example, hemophilia or certain types of hemophilia. There's this famous biology textbook pedigree of the royal family, all descendant from Queen Victoria. And mm -hmm. then you have all the Sarevich who has hemophilia. Yeah. So, I mean, this is basically what we're talking about. You have some genes that are showing up in men and not showing up in women, but at the same time, you have a process that's called X inactivation. So for females, I think even during embryonic development, it starts that the X chromosome, the second one is silenced with like a complex of RNA and protein. And it seems, and I think this research is not super developed so that we can really make strong conclusions there, but it seems that there might be actually a link between this high prevalence of autoimmune diseases and having this X inactivation process and having this double X process. So having just an increased amount of inflammation, creation of autoantibodies, that might actually be linked to this silencing of the second X. And that's something that you could actually take into account at different stage of the drug development process, right? Because when you start and you go into just in vitro, so using cells, you know, you need to take that component into account. And then that translates down the line on what kind of animal experiment that might be required, most of them being done in male mice or male rats at the moment, which is also a question. But I think we're developing also new tools at the moment called organoids. Basically, you're trying to put a bundle of cells together or what they call organon chip, where you have those fancy chip with a micro tunnel, where you, which you see with cells, where you're trying to actually mimic the condition. So I think we're getting into this new area where we are actually much better and we will be able to take that into account. And we don't just need to you know, double the number of animal experiments. We're absolutely not talking about that. Actually, interesting side note, we have an episode on organoids lined up, so we'll uh, mm -hmm. dive into that because it's also a super exciting topic, of course, and might solve some of these issues to, to actually have a more complete picture because you can take cells of more diverse backgrounds. Because one thing I think, Pascal, you actually mentioned that when we were discussing before, I mean, one thing is it's this 
underrepresentation. It's not only women, but it's also many diverse, ethnically diverse groups that are just not happening in clinical research and also in preclinical research because it's all like, I don't know, five cell lines that you use and then you use like some mouse experiments and then you use a pretty heterogeneous group of often white males for your of healthy young age for your clinical study and then of course you miss out on a lot of diversity which makes sense of course in the sense that you get better I mean the deviation of your data will be less and it's easier to get statistically meaningful data on the other hand you might miss out on uh, important effects in females or in other groups that might have just some genetic diversity. Same biases we run into by developing AI things, obviously, you know, for treatment or research as well. But if we took, I mean, the bottom line question of the non-scientist, would we likely process different results if we used female mice? Yes. All right. Yes, because we are exactly because of what Louisa just explained regarding the different genome. There is as well another differences that have been shown on pharmacokinetics, for example, which is the way in which the drugs are processed into the the body that are different for females and males, and this is highly related as well with the efficacies of the the drugs, of course, right? Because it goes hand in hand. So it's not only the safety, it's also how efficacious they are, and also what the field is trying to show more and more is that by having segregated data by sex, you are not only helping a minority here and several other minorities, if we even look at other disproportional represented groups, but you're also helping to understand where one could focus more. And there is now, in for the last years in R&D and in medicine, personalized medicine based on biomarkers, is, it's always been talked about. And for me, it's kind of striking that the most obvious biomarker that there is, that you can see with your own eyes in some cases, is not taken in consideration. And we are looking at gene expression and not at sex as we once should. That's an, just outrageous, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I mean, so what's the bottom line of this? Is this a, simply a man's world, to quote a famous rock song? <laughs> No, I think there's there's a, a lot of points that we need to consider here. There's, it's not like this is a, a whole theory, conspiracy theory against women. That's not the case. At least I don't want to see it in that way. It has as well some historical context and some policy context. So if we go back to the 70s, for example, there in the US where, again, as I said, a lot of research is done, FDA in 77, 1977 has eliminated or has requested to stop the test on trials of women of childbearing age. And this had a rationale by then because of thalidomide and because of the risk of fetal right. defects. Obviously, and it, it yeah. made sense, of course, but then it had consequences. There was almost 20 years until 1993 in which women were not included in phase one and phase two trials. And this means that a lot of safety and efficacy was not there. And this also means that a lot of drugs that nowadays we have in the market, like for blood coagulants, antidepressants, a lot of these drugs that now are highly genericized and even some sold over the counter have not been tested in women and Incredible. have been approved yeah. without these tests. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, we've seen in the 90s, you have some indication like coming back to rheumatoid arthritis that are predominant in women, but more into the older women where you had a tremendous shift, right? You went from having a symptomatic treatment that was focusing on pain, pain relief 
to what is called disease-modifying treatment with the introduction of methotrexate and uh, down-the-line targeted biology with Embrol that were extremely successful. I think the pixels of that was around 8 billion. So that was the case for where we addressed an unmet need in women, but in that case, older age. And coming back to your point about the actual development of Austral in the phase three, you know, you had actually the good 80% or 90% of, of women, which was great, but I think 90% of them were only focusing on white women. So a lot of minorities being ignored. Next bias, yeah. Easy, we have same but different. I think the intentions were good in the core, but led to misleading results, obviously. This is not only associated to the FDA, but is a worldwide phenomenon, maybe not associated to lawmaking only, but to practice, right? The difference leading to things like who is treating me, like is the doctor a male or a female, has significant impact. Yeah. I mean, there are studies that show in general that women take longer to be diagnosed for any kind of disease and especially for any kind of woman's disease where it takes like really long for endometriosis, something like up to seven years and how many like seven healthcare professionals or something. So you need to really undergo, I mean, that's a term from the rare disease field, but it's the diagnostic odyssey. So you really have to seek out a lot of specialists yourself to actually get your diagnosis, but also for more simple and yeah, any kind of heart disease. It just takes longer to diagnose women and they're less likely to get the right treatment or get treatment at all and often get also referred, for example, instead of getting pain medication, get referred to a psychiatrist. Yeah, and these likelihoods, so the likelihood of getting the wrong treatment, I think this, these are studies from heart disease space, is more likely if a male physician treats a female. And that is simply because I think the signs and symptoms are very different. For example, suffering a heart attack. So it often goes undiagnosed because the male physician would have this classical, let's say, textbook image in mind and not recognize that. And then, I mean, there's also these elements of gender that the communication about symptoms might be different. The help-seeking behaviors might be different in women than they are in men. And therefore, the recognition of what is actual Pain and pain phenomena. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. And I think, especially for the autoimmune disease space, one of the challenges is also that it's quite an, let's say, like diffuse set of symptoms that you often have, like pain, inflammation, but it's not that very clear. Okay, you have, I don't know, something shows up that really clearly tells your physician, ah, oh, you have that. So, for example, lupus, I think, is quite, mm -hmm. for in many cases, very difficult to, to diagnose initially. And then I think having these two factors playing into it. On the one hand, um, the potential bias of a physician and then maybe the under-reporting of symptoms that a woman who thinks like, ah, I need to function and it's probably fine, right. but I have these rashes and pain and I don't know what for. Caretaker reflex. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that plays into it. Yeah. And, but here I completely agree. And this is mm. unfortunately the reality, but also we need to see it from the other side. I also do not think that doctors or male doctors in particular are here to frame women. It's also, it's also not, the system is also on their favor. So there has 
been very little attention during their education and during their curriculum into female health. Actually, more than 70% of Canada and US doctors had no formula curriculum on sex and gender differences back in 2011. So these are the doctors that are current, current yeah. ones. And actually in 2016, less than 35% of the medical students felt prepared to deal with gender and sex differences. So this is not on their, on their favor as well. So it's hard for them. And, you know, two years ago in 2022, there was a huge news and it was seen as like, what an amazing thing is that Elsevier launched the first anatomical model of women two years ago, the first anatomical model of women. And, you know, this already shows that even doctors, there's their limitations. They cannot do something if they haven't received the proper education to it. I hear you that you claim it's not necessarily the fault of male doctors. So, and, and, and I understand that, of course, yeah. And it's also about giving them the proper information when you report data about mm -hmm. drug. You know, mm -hmm. quite often you have this table that gives you just a percentage of women as part of those trials, and then you have curve, but it's not really like, separated between the two. And getting this awareness put front for the doctors to know what they should pay attention to, that would actually bring additional benefits. Mm. Yeah, and having, I mean, most guidelines do not separate, right, by sex and, or sex and gender, and that also, I mean... And we made clear that they should by yeah. now. So, sure. I mean, women are not just like men who weigh a little bit less, but they just have a different body composition and are more likely to suffer adverse events, have different profiles on how they process drugs. And that, of course, should be also reflected in guidelines and also in prescription routines, which I think currently for most fields, it's not. There is these two points here, which is the social awareness and the educational awareness. And the educational awareness we just touched upon, but the social has to as well be taken in consideration because the fact that women receive, in average, pain medication 16 minutes later than men, or that it takes four years longer for women to receive the same diagnostic for the same disease as men, It, it waits because mm -hmm. this has this all this societal aspect. And for example, in 2000, in the US, they examined the drugs that were approved for widespread use and then withdrew and due to safety issues. And they noticed that eight out of 10 drugs had worse side effects for women. So it is all a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not just talking about side effects, right? When you, when you look at the sleeping pill of Ambien, actually in this case, the effect was much stronger mm -hmm. in women, right? And you were giving the same dose to male and female, and that resulted, you know, in problems for them. Is down this the line. genetically or is this uh, just a BMI kind of... It's a combination of both. You, you know, the, 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 the field like uh, pharmacogenomics, which is taking off, we're trying to understand, and but then the BMI composition and other aspects come in. Easy, you coined it an expanding view of women's health, diverse conditions under one umbrella. Easy, maybe first a little introduction into these things everybody knows, but nobody's curing or nobody's taking serious care of. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, for this classical women's health conditions, uh, something like endometriosis, how many? It's like one in 10 women, something around that, who is suffering from that. And it's really debilitating. I mean, it's really severe symptoms, including also a higher risk of infertility. It's a really severe disease. And having a cure for that or even a proper diagnosis would be extreme. Yes. Yeah, I think here, because we do actually yeah. systematic screen, yeah. right? And, and this question comes up and you have a few dimensions where yeah. basically this is labeled as red. Yeah. That would be, for example, the market entry because you have low-cost treatment available in this indication. So that's the one thing that scares actually biotech and pharma. The second one would, when you're developing the drug, pain is a scary endpoint for pharma because you have a strong placebo effect and they are afraid to go in this indication. And you still have the fundamental issue that they don't understand the disease well. So the level of investment required for that is intense. Yeah, so I mean, it's usually treated just with birth control pills exactly. and pain medication. Okay, let me throw in another one. How about menopause? Which affects a billion yeah. women. The forecast is yeah. 1.2 billion. Yeah. But here, I, I see a bigger shift there because mm -hmm. with menopause, again, menopause is not a disease by itself <laughs> in any point, but actually... 75%, if I remember correctly, of women would suffer side effects from menopause. One of the most common is the vasomotor symptoms, which is these hot flushes. And here there is already more interest from the pharmaceutical industry going there. There has been uh, recently a non-hormonal drug approved to that. Actually, Super Bowl last year, there was an ad on menopause, which was groundbreaking, get it or not, but it was, and that's great. But here there has been a shift and there are different reasons for that. One of it's the understanding of the biology that is behind it, because it's also, you cannot do much if you do not understand on how to address something. And then the other thing is that you are taking a symptom on itself alone and treating it differently. And with endometriosis, for example, we are talking about different points there. You have the inflammatory arm, you have the pain arm. So it's trickier. It's At the same time that the research and development needs to move, the understanding of the indication needs to be there as well. And maybe to, to add on that, what is missing currently is because you still have research being done in academia, but the translation towards early stage biotech and the funding component that is supposed to be done by VCs initially is missing because it, it will take longer for them. And they are looking at the shorter, like a return to time to investment. I mean, this is, this is the translational aspect you meet in every pharma medical Absolutely. associated topic right now and this is a, the magic bullet if you will but even more so i think in female health let's throw in the third one which is premenstrual pain i can imagine that this is i mean a business field i mean how blind can pharma be not to address this <laughs> in a way because my market is half the world population yeah i mean not not all women have it but i think a pretty significant amount. I think, I mean, there are multiple things about that. I think it's being normalized that, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to survive that or there's the treatment the same as for endometriosis. And I think it's often actually not dis disentangled if it's PMS or if it's, if it's endometriosis or something else. So it's associated with having pain, with having heavy periods, with having mood changes, all these things. And I think it's just that, let's say the common opinion around it is, yeah, deal with it 
yeah. take some ibuprofen. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there is a huge amount of stigmatization, of course, around it because it's like this kind of, and I mean, it's getting better now, I think in Western societies, but even there, there's this thing like, ah, that's dirty, don't talk about it kind of. And still, yeah, yeah. which is and, a, a, another, another incredible piece yeah. of evidence, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. then I think really getting to the bottom of what it actually is, if it's pathological or if it's still physiological, I think is really difficult. Yeah. And then having maybe a treatment that stabilizes your all over well-being during yeah. these days would be actually quite nice. And, and I think you're touching a key point here is, so we've been talking about the pharma component, but there's mm. a mm. diagnostic component. Right. And what will push drug development forward is to be able in those populations to be able to zoom in on precise patient population that have a higher net need or that you're able to actually quantify and identify them because that's usually associated with higher probability of success and a good path forward. Yeah, and I think it's important as well to think about pharma is not on purpose missing out on an opportunity. And I have to say this whole field of women's health from this lens came to me very obviously when during our job, when we help pharma companies strategize and prioritize portfolios, we start to look systematically into different indications. And if you have on one side all the women's health typical indications, endometriosis, menopause, P causative fibroids, and then you are doing a prioritization exercise against even, for example, breast cancer or colorectal cancer or lung cancer, it becomes very hard for you as a data-driven consultant, in my case, that you would say go for endometriosis and not for colorectal cancer. Because you have, in colorectal cancer or any other, you have clear endpoints and a clear path to market. Right. Sure. You have a positive business case laid out there. And that's actually one of our major points that at Katyanin we're always mm. talking about is that you need to make the business case. Pharma is a profit, profit business Driven. and they yep. need to see the positive business case. And it always goes with it. And the research being there, the diagnostics being there, You need a whole environment for pharma to jump in. So research and translational research needs to be in place. Yeah. And yeah. really like a disease that takes on average seven years to diagnose is a nightmare in this model. Obvious. Right. I mean, that's of course. very obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But we should not underestimate that. And that's coming from our conversation with different players. Is categorizing, for example, endometriosis as a woman's health disease versus an immunological disease, which is highly debated, like beneficial of that. And I don't want to get too much of the topic, but that's a hard debate. Yeah, of well. course, of course. Yeah. So we need risk embracing VC, obviously, in the field to solve this and to increase the sex appeal of the promise that lies ahead, most definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> Come on. We need Sorry, it. I need to I need to because our oh. listeners cannot see but uh, both our guests were raising their hands excitedly at that moment. <laughs> Eyes wide open. Yeah. You're touching, like a, <laughs> you're touching a very important point, but at the same time, you know, there are two different paths for funding and you have the VCs and there's a shorter time frame and they need to have the return on investment soon. But on the other hand, you need to have the public investment also going into this direction and both need to, to go. So it needs to be de-risked by public investment so that VCs can come and go through as well. And in that context, I think we need to mention that Jill Biden actually announced commitment for 100 million going into the women's health research, which is a big step forward. Now you still have to put in the context of the 
NIH cancer moonshot, which was 1.8 billion over seven years. So it's a great start. And then let's take it from there. But it's still, I mean, it is Absolutely. a great start. And I think this also helps. And I, you can see also, I think I read somewhere in an article that the funding from VC has increased by, I think, like 300% or something in the last couple of years. I don't know, you might disentangle that now, but I think there is some movement in the right direction. And I think just having the awareness to coming back to what I said before, that it's not just something you need to suffer and maybe better don't mention to anyone but that it might actually be symptoms that are deserving of diagnosis and cure yeah. can already be very helpful, I think. On, on that point of the VC, one thing that it's very important when discussing women's health is to understand the difference of women's health therapeutic and diagnostic-wise mm -hmm. to femtech. They are both important, they both go hand in hand, but they are very different, especially when we talk about financing and risk-averse mm -hmm. or uh, pro-risk, for example, from a VC, because fem health, a term actually coined here in Berlin by the co-founder in 2016, it's more focused on the apps and on uh, this mm -hmm. technological part, which is right. a very important one that mm -hmm. uh, gives a lot of power to women, but in terms of investment is a very different field. Yeah, yeah. But this, this could be the starting point for a holistic approach, most definitely. Easy, let's close with, the, as we so often do, with the societal look, the male-centric medicine that was developed, I believe, like the past... Three and a half thousand years, probably, if we look at Egypt or even further back, they probably developed that right there, the first steps. And we didn't have that many female pharaohs, I guess. And since then... One, one uh, at least. I think, yeah, I know. And, but we, we, I think we developed proof that women are thrown under the medical pharma bus. What are we going to do about it? as a society or as developed societies, how do we approach this? Mm. How do we tackle this? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it's really, I have to say when I researched and wrote the script for the episode, I was actually quite angry, <laughs> which yeah, I usually so. which I usually don't have. I usually don't feel very emotional because you sometimes ask, how does that affect you personally? And I'm always like, yeah, it's a, yeah. like a thought experiment. But here I really, because I recognized a lot of these things in my own interactions with doctors, this kind of like, yeah, just... <sighs> don't make a fuss kind of attitude or it will go away, take some pain medication What and for any kind of symptoms, not really women's health, but just coming there and reporting any kinds of symptoms. And that actually, I, I really reflected a lot on even like being in a super privileged position that I would say I am based on where I live and from education and everything and having enough money. I still have these experiences. So I think coming from a different socio-economical background or coming from a more patriarchal society, etc., it's probably a million times worse for prioritization. So I think going back, women's health has been very long stigmatized and let's say held under under a blanket just in order not to have to deal with Yeah, with female sexuality and with female needs, because I think that's something that, I mean, didn't fit into society models for a long time, because I think biologically it makes sense if the female stays with one mate. <laughs> so the children yep. that you raise, okay, now I'm really talking, talking a little bit, but I mean, the, the children that you raise are yours. 
that's yeah. kind of I think the the background model to right. better keep the woman at home and not explore too much what's going on downstairs and I think having a bit more open I mean really just open communication and not feeling ashamed to talk to your OBGYN which already is a big step I think will help to also create advocacy amongst women because not being stigmatized and not feeling shame around symptoms that you experience also will help demand treatment. Yes, so I think we went a lot into the points or where we are doomed, especially as women, and I think that's unfortunately quite clear. But I also think that we are starting to be saved. <laughs> so there's mm. more investment going in. There, are, In the last two years, there were several very interesting and groundbreaking research that has been made in immunological diseases, in endometriosis, that is going on. A lot of uh, new companies coming up with new ideas to go into. So I think this is important, and I think it will change, and it is changing. Women are much more vocal, more educated to go out there. And I also think it's important that, depending on what is our role in society that we also uh, talk about it and not only women but men because this is important equally to both because sure. uh, sex segregated data will also benefit men and one thing that is very important is the data collection and data segregation especially as we go more and more into the AI field because AI will use whatever data is available and you need and there is a huge gender data gap that needs to be addressed but I think things are moving forward and forming alliances and and building credibility on this point is very important, and it is happening. I hear you. Uh, Pascal, anything to add? Yeah, I think it's also time regulatory agencies step up. Uh, you've had examples in the past in the orphan space that they created incentive for drug developers to actually go into that direction, and that completely transformed one field. And they have this responsibility to do the same for women's health as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one thing to add would be, I mean, to also segregating data and creating more advocacy to also focus that not only on white women, but having a mixture there and representing all groups, because I think that is really important because that adds to the picture and adds to the potential for equality. We are doomed, we are saved. Episode number 20. Thank you, Anna Pascal for, Thank you for joining us you. this time. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on the platform of your choice, be it Spotify or Apple or something else, and leave a comment and talk to us. Encourage us to take on other topics of your choice, and uh, we are eager to hear from you. Izzy, do we know anything about the things to come? Yeah, we'll talk. Uh, we'll have some guests again from the biotech space and we'll talk about one of our favorite topics, aging and cell rejuvenation in the next episode. You're talking to me because I'm old, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> Thank you, Izzy. <laughs>